0: All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being here on this uh, uh, holiday weekend. i uh, grateful that you're here in person, that uh, some are joining us online this morning for this first Sunday of Advent, this uh, Advent of Hope that is ours is the theme of uh, this first Sunday of Advent, which we will be observing uh, up until uh, Christmas Day. And so we're grateful that you're to be a part of this. Now, one of the things that we have been talking about in great deal in our study in the book of Romans is when it comes this idea of hope as a people of God as followers of Christ whenever we use the word hope or we speak of our hope uh, it is not wishful thinking that's the way the world thinks when they use that word hope I hope this happens it's, it's a representation of wishful thinking our hope is is a conviction of what is to be of what is to come the redemptive purposes of God that will not be denied they will be fulfilled all they have to do is occur And so we wait in hope. Now I can give you another example of hope that may be more tangible for you. Maybe all this past week, maybe as late as uh, 5.30 or 6 last night, you were thinking, man, I hope we beat those Oklahoma Sooners. And you're saying that with a tone of wishful thinking. You're wishing that that would happen. In contrast, those guys over in the FTF, the football training facility, They had a conviction. They knew they were going to beat the Oklahoma Sooners on Saturday. All they had to do was wait for it to get here and play the game. And they had a conviction that they were going to win. And so maybe yours as a fan was just wishful thinking. Their hope was a conviction. Well, that's what we have here in this room. We, when we talk about hope, we have a conviction about the redemptive purposes of God. While those who are outside the body of Christ, those who have a secular worldview, they just—they're uh, just wishful that things work out in the end. Ours is a different kind of hope, and we have the conviction that our hope is near. Russell Conwell is a name that maybe you have heard before. He was. Uh, lived his life in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. He was a minister of the gospel. He was also the founder of Temple University in Philadelphia. He, he had a famous motivational speech that he gave over 6,100 times in his career uh, entitled, Acres of Diamonds. The story about a young man that he knew, a brilliant young man at Yale University where Conwell also attended the university. But this brilliant young man had come to Yale to study mine engineering, wanted to be a miner, wanted to find his, his wealth. Brilliant student. In fact, his senior year, this student was offered a job in his his department to be a teaching aide, a teaching assistant for $15 a week. When he graduated, uh, they offered him $45 a week to stay and teach in that that engineering school at Yale University. He turned them down, he had visions of grandeur, visions of richness. He convinced his widow mother to sell the family farm Massachusetts, and moved with him west. He had a bad case of gold fever, and they were going to find their, find their wealth and their prosperity going west. Of course, it never happened. Conwell said, the last time I heard about this young man, he was working for some copper mining company in Minnesota for $15 a week. There's another side of the story. The man, the family that bought his mother's farm was a potato farmer. One day, this gentleman, this potato farmer had been out working in the field, had gathered up a bushel basket of potatoes and was walking back and was walking out of the field and through a stone gate that had always been there. And his, and his basket hung on, on something and uh, he was untangling it and he, he, he saw in this, in this stone gate, this stone, stone gateway, uh, a, shiny, a shiny stone that, that stood out from the rest. It was a piece, a large block of native silver worth over $100,000. Now you think about that family that had sold that farm visions of grandeur visions of wealth visions of prosperity and the thought that it was always somewhere else how many times had that young man walked through that gate having worked in the field having walked by that stone maybe even noticed it before But was always looking for his wealth for his hope somewhere other than where he was. And so it is with God. The masses think that if God is to be found, if God is to be known, if he is to be realized, then I have to go find him somewhere. I have to go off to some Tibetan hotspot. I have to go off to, to some mountain somewhere. I have to go off to, to some retreat if I'm going to find God. I've got to find a, a popular personality that, that has a podcast if I'm really going to find God. Always going off somewhere else, thinking that he is somewhere else other than where you are right now. You see, that's that's what separates the Christian faith from all other world religions. It is God with us, it is God near us, it is God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. In a text I want us to consider this this morning for just a moment, I think Paul has encountered these same kind of people. Athens at that time was The center of intellectual life in the ancient world, a city beyond its years, a place of prosperity, affluence, great intellectual capacity. In fact, if you read the full narrative in, 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 in Acts chapter 17 and in verses 16, beginning in verse 16 all the way through, uh, through the end of, of the chapter. I mean, one of the things that is noted here that the Athenians and strangers visiting here used to spend their time doing nothing other than telling or hearing something new. This was a place of, of intellectual capacity where people loved to come and to gather and to philosophize. And Paul would have found this, and in fact, it says that Paul, he was being provoked within, within, he was being provoked within there in verse 16. Paul would have found this to be a place that was very engaging. Paul would have been very stimulated by being around these kind of, of people and reasoning with them and trying to rationalize with them to help them discover what it is that they are searching for. I want to begin. The, the narrative, pick it up there in verse 20. It says, so, so Paul stood, he had been talking to the philosophers in that, in that city. It says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. It was a Athenian governing council. It's also a, um, a famous outcro- rock outcropping northwest of Athens to this day, but Paul's, it's an Athenian governing council. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I say that, that you are very religious in, in all respects. But while I was passing through and examining the objects of, of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. I, I greatly appreciate and respect your hunger and thirst for God and your, your quest to find him and, and to discover him. I mean, you've left, you've left no stone unturned. I mean, you've even got an altar to an unknown God just in case you've missed one somewhere in the the vast panorama. I have great respect for your hunger and, and your thirst. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he, made, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and, their, and the boundaries of their habitation. Uh, we, see the, we see the boundaries coming down today, don't they? don't we? I mean, uh, the boundaries that are being removed in our culture where there are no boundaries, you see what it is. It is, is it, it is an assault upon the boundary maker if we in our society can eliminate all the boundaries where you just do as you please. Well, once you eliminate all the boundaries, what you're really doing is you're eliminating the boundary maker. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would That they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for Him and find Him, though He is, here's Paul saying it, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now then, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we shall hear, hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. As we come to the the moment of communion, when we partake of, of this bread and this fruit of the vine, I hope what we might understand this morning and the influence that we might allow it to have is a reminder of the nearness of God. That this representation of his flesh and his blood, this symbolic metaphor, would, would be a reminder to us of his nearness. As it was for the, the first communion meal, technically, the Passover meal. Gathered with, with his disciples in nearness and proximity. And as we saw a few weeks ago in the book of Romans, Paul portrayed it so beautifully, the the nearness of God with these familiar words. And in Romans chapter 10 and and verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in righteousness. In your quest, in your search for God, don't get hung up in all the, the gateways of possibility. But realize that the gateway to the Father is as far as the heart is from the mouth confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead that's how near God is, father how often it is that we want to make your presence something that is distant far away aloof Hard to capture. But Father, how these moments, these poignant moments such as this, remind us of your nearness. Through the obedient observation of, of this communion meal, partaking of your body, partaking of your blood, we are reminded that God is incarnate. God is with us. And that this might forever be, not just for a season, but that it might forever be our hope that sustains us each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would, if you would take your cup, remove the wafer. Jesus said, this is the bread which came down from heaven not as the fathers ate and died. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Very carefully, remove the cover for the juice. And hear in your mind the words of Jesus who said to his disciples on that fateful night, "'This is my blood, which is shed for you "'for the remission of sin.'" Father, how grateful we are to be called your people, to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. And Father, I pray that as we go forth from this place, that ours might be an incarnational presence in this world and that ours might be a living hope for the world to see. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together with hope-filled hearts Sing of his grace.
1: say yeah. Shall soon dissolve like snow, and the sun forbear to shine. But Amazing grace.
0: May you go in this grace. And on your way out, those men will be standing at the door to take your above your tithes and offerings giving to the Gideons. Have a great week.